0: If you were here with us last summer, you may recall that we, uh, last summer, we did what we called a Summer of Generosity. And we encourage you to consider uh, giving beyond what many of you normally give, very generous in your giving, to a mission project during the summer. Missionary to support our mission project. We're actually going to do that exact same thing this summer. And so our mission focus for the month of June is going to be Reg and Kim Frank's ministry. And so we're going to talk to and highlight for you and encourage you to be praying about and considering an ongoing support for them uh, during the month of June. And then in the month of July, just two weeks ago, we heard uh, P.V. Uh, Joseph from India talk about the ministry there and what God's called him to do there and, and the critical need for water. And they're raising funds right now to build the water tower so they have water to meet the needs of four to 500 uh, children that they're ministering to and educating and using the gospel, just like you heard Reg describe, using the gospel as a way to educate these children and the scriptures as a way to do that. And so July will be our focus on um, P.V. and the ministry there in India. And then we're gonna wrap up the summer with the focus in August, and we're gonna focus and get an update from the Denver House project. Uh, we heard from uh, Rod Redkay, the Executive Director of Real Life Community Services, uh, last year, and they've done a great job moving forward on that goal. We wanna give you an update on that and tell you how close that project is getting and give you an opportunity to participate in those this summer. So we want you to be praying and saying, God, where do, you want me to, where do you want me to give? And for you to be exploring those possibilities, we're going to highlight them throughout the summer as opportunities for you to take a step beyond. Paul says in 1 Timothy, he says, I want you to be rich in good deeds. And one of the things you know if you travel internationally is that we are a wealthy people. You might not feel wealthy right now, but we are blessed. And uh, we want to encourage you not only to uh, continue to give generously as you do here to CCC, but to say, God, is there something more you want me to do? And be open and listening to His voice speaking to your heart about what those things might be. Well, over the last 12 weeks, I've had a disdain for Fridays. Um, You say, why have you had a disdain for Fridays? Well, after I came back from my uh, trip to Israel, um, as some of you, many of you know, I'd had some surgeries last year and I wasn't able to exercise regularly and I wanted to start getting back in shape, but I had some injuries and I wasn't sure how I could do the exercise I normally do with the injuries I had. So I contacted an individual in the area who was a personal trainer, and she said, I'd be happy to work with you. Uh, But she required me every Friday to step on this scale and to write this down. And I don't know how it would happen, but I would eat healthy all week long, and and I would do a 45-minute nonstop, dripping with sweat, full-body workout. And somehow, between the time I stood on my scale when I left the house, and I stood on the scale at the gym, a three-pound weight jumped in my pocket. I don't know how it happened. Every single week just drove me crazy. Just drove me crazy. And in that moment, I found myself evaluating myself and saying not very good things to myself about that journey. So I don't know when the last time you were evaluated. Maybe it was was something physical where you had to go to the doctor. Maybe you had to have a physical to play sports in school. Maybe you were starting a new job, or maybe it's just annually you're going to see the doctor. Maybe it's your review with your boss where you sat down with them and they said, let's talk about this past year and let's review what you did and, and let's talk about improvements. Maybe that was the last time you were evaluated. Maybe you've thought about trying out for CCC's version of The Voice, you know, and uh, you're going to provide some of your musical talents and abilities and say, maybe I could use them to serve God uh, here at CCC. Maybe you were just playing a pickup game and everybody was picking teams and you wondered if you had enough skill and expertise for a game of dodgeball. But if you think about being evaluated, it stirs up all kinds of stuff inside of us, doesn't it? I mean, sometimes when you think about being evaluated, you think you feel a little anxious. You know, what's going to happen? Am I going to get bad news? Is the other shoe going to drop? Maybe you feel a little curious and excited. You love new and different opportunities, and so you're not worried about it. You're just, hey, I can't wait to see what's going to happen. Maybe you're a little puzzled and confused, just not sure what to think. But when was the last time you wondered, how does God evaluate me? What does God think about me? And what's my relationship with God like? You know, I discovered there's a couple critical times in people's lives where they start to wonder what God thinks about them. One of those times, Greg talked about it earlier, is in the middle of the night. Can't sleep. Things roaming through your head, thinking about choices, decisions, worries, fears. What's God think about me? Scrolls through our minds. Another time is a sudden tragic loss of someone your age or younger. And you wonder if I met God now, what would that be like? What would He think of me right now if that happened? And the truth is, it could. It could. A third time is when you face a life-threatening situation like a heart attack or a car accident or a life-threatening illness and you think, oh my goodness, what if I meet my maker? What if I meet my maker? You know, as we continue in this subject of prayer, I want to suggest to you that um, the way that God gets a snapshot of you is different than standing on a scale or showing off your talents uh, or even your skill. But God does an assessment of it in a very different way. He actually does an assessment when we pray. So, what do you mean, when we pray? When we pray. Well, we've been in this series entitled 40 Days of Prayer, and, and this morning I want us to talk about um, how God gets a snapshot of our heart. How does God get a snapshot of our heart? The challenge in these 40 days, as I said to you, was for you to say, God, what is it you want me to pray about? Is there something in my life that I have no idea how you're going to meet this need, solve this problem, provide a way? And I'm going to bring that to you for 40 days in a row. And see what you do. See what you do. This past week I was messaging an individual about a situation I've been praying about. And they told me something that changed in that situation. And I was quite shocked. I don't know why I'm shocked when God shows up, because He does it regularly. But I was shocked. I was like, wow, God, I was praying for You to soften this individual's heart that, that seemed like there was no way three weeks ago that person's heart was going to soften. And You did it. You did it. And I was like, wow, God, that is really, really cool. And so we began this series looking at you challenging you to pray about something that you couldn't imagine what God would do. And then PV was with us and challenged us to pray like Jesus and to pray, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth just like it is in heaven. And then lastly, Roddy, last week, Roddy challenged us with this prayer to pray this prayer God, you are good, God, you are here, and God, you hear. God, you hear. And this morning, I want to continue actually in the same place that Robbie ended in last week, and that's in Luke 18. Luke 18, if you have your Bibles, if you would turn to them, Luke 18, or follow along on your devices on an app, uh, Luke 18 is page 851 in your Bibles, that if you grab one, or excuse me, yes, 851 in the Bibles in your seats, 851, the Bibles in your seats, grab one of those if you don't have one, I'd love to have you follow along this morning. In Luke 8:18 8, Jesus is going to tell another parable. Another parable and a parable is simply a form of a story. It's not a form of story that we use very often these days, but it's a form of a story in which there's a twist and you don't get an ending that you're expecting. It's an unexpected end. It's the kind of story that you're slowly drawn into and you're sitting there kind of on the edge of your seat and then all of a sudden you realize huh, they're talking about me. Talking about me. And Jesus used this story repeatedly to draw his listeners in, to draw those that were hearing in, to help them see something that they could not see. A parable is different than an allegory. In an allegory, everything means something, but a parable, that's not the case. Uh, and it's important a critical element of the parable is who the story is being told to who the story is being told to. And He tells us that right away in Luke 18, verse 9. He's telling this story, first of all, to, some, to those who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. That's who Jesus is speaking to. The first is those who are confident of their own righteousness. These are people who they kind of thought they were okay with God. And if this might be maybe most of you this morning. You know, you uh, haven't committed any crimes recently that you know of. You know, there's not a worn out for your rest that you know of. Um, You didn't treat anybody badly other than a buggy you were trying to get around this morning on your way to church, you know. Um, So, you know, the record's pretty clean. You're in pretty good shape. And if God said, okay, now's the time, you'd feel okay about standing before Him right now. It's not too bad. It's not too bad. He then lists another group. He says, and those who look down on everyone else. Those who look down on everyone else. This one we're not as quickly to fess up to. Not as quickly. Because when we look down on someone else, then we view ourselves as better than they are. I didn't commit that crime like he did or she did, I didn't get myself addicted like they did. I didn't throw my whole life and marriage and career away like that person did. Not sure how much we would more how much we would fess up to this one, because we usually don't say these words. We just they roll around in here, they roll around in here. But this is who Jesus is writing to this morning. He's writing those who are confident, who are okay with God. And those who look down on others and set themselves up on a pedestal. And Jesus goes on to tell the story of two individuals, two guys, that could not be more different from one another. Polar opposites is what we would call them. And I was trying to think of some polar opposites and I thought, well, how about this guy from the deep south, you know? you know, compare him to to some guy from the urban north, you know, that's about as opposite as you get, isn't it? Isn't it? I thought, what if we went into a sports analogy? Here's a sports analogy. How about some rabid Eagles fans? You know, they're on the one side of the equation. And then you got your arrogant, sophisticated Cowboys fans just sitting there with their golf clap on the other side, you know. That's about as polar opposite as you can get. But that's what Jesus was talking about. Two guys that were as extreme as you could possibly imagine. And he said they went up to the temple to pray. Frequent practice in those days. Frequent practice. You say, why they go to the temple to pray? Why couldn't they just pray where they were? Well, up until this point in time, uh, the, the, the scriptures taught that God's presence was wherever the temple was. And that's why the Jewish people would come to the temple several times a year for annual festivals and feasts. Because in the temple was this, um, the Holy of Holies, this place where the Ark of the Covenant is, where God's presence dwelt. And it wasn't until Jesus left the earth and he taught the people that when I leave the earth, my, my spirit is going to come and be with those of you that follow me. And so he will be with each of you. And so prior to Jesus leaving the earth, it was believed by the Jewish people based on the scriptures that the only place you could meet with God is in the temple. And so they would go there a couple of times, especially if you lived in Jerusalem, a couple of times a day to pray as part of their faith practice. And he says there's two individuals. One is a Pharisee. And a Pharisee was just really a religious guy. He was a respected community leader. Um, He was part of the religious ruling community in the Jewish culture. The religious and the political were merged together in a lot of ways. So you had the Pharisees and you had the Sanhedrin. And they both had parts of the Jewish um, religious and political authority. This was someone who was revered and looked up to in the culture. Generally considered a good guy. He's the guy that got the respect in the community. The other guy, not so much. He was a tax collector, he was considered a leech on the society. He was a Jew who was working for the Romans. He would collect taxes for the Romans, and he was granted permission to take taxes for himself, and sometimes he would take up to an additional 10%. I mean, this was a guy from the community. This was a kid you grew up with. This was a kid on your sports team. And now he's exacting money from you for your hated enemy. I mean, imagine if your whole family was Republican or your whole family was Democrat, and and one member of the family went to the other side and worked for that opposing party's committee, trying to round. I mean, this is what it was like. This is what it was like. The tax collectors in the Bible were often put in their own own category. In the Bible, it often says sinners and tax collectors. They were so bad they didn't even get in the sinners bucket. They had to have their own bucket. They were that bad. And they both came to God. And they came to Him and prayed. And the Pharisee is first up, and notice what he says. He says, God, I thank You. God, I thank You. That, those are kind of positive words. Words of gratitude towards God. God. And usually this follows with I'm grateful for you know this day or I'm grateful for the life that I have I'm grateful for my my health I'm grateful for the provision of the work that I have or the food that I have to eat It's usually gratitude for something but what does he what does he say He said I'm thankful that I'm not like all the other people the robbers the evildoers, the adulterers or even like that tax collector He then goes on to tell God about all of His religious activities. He said, I fast twice. I give a tenth. Fasting was considered voluntary. It's not required. It was twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, bread and water. That's it. So He even went beyond the expected to the next level. And He said, I give 10% of everything I have back to God. He appears to do all that God would expect. And He wears it as His badge of honor. What fault could be found in a man who represents the best of the best? But his praise and his prayer is actually a distortion. It almost appear that, appears that God is honored that this guy is on his team. That, God is, that, that he's with God. Notice how many times he goes through and says the word I. You count them? One, two, three. Three, four, five times in a very short prayer he says the word I. Making who the subject of the prayer. Who's the subject of the prayer? He is himself. He's the subject of the prayer. Not God. Not God. Him. He's followed by the tax collector. And the tax collector stood off at a distance. Stood off to the side one would assume, by himself. Doesn't even look up. Just kind of pounds on his chest. He seems to be overwhelmed. Overwhelmed. And notice the tax collector's prayer. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Seven words. Pharisee have five eyes. This guy only has seven words. That's it. That's it. He starts his prayer the same way that the Pharisee does by acknowledging God. They both start with the word God. But that's where the similarities end. He says, God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Mercy is not getting something you deserve because of something you did wrong. Not getting something you deserve. It's a police officer letting you off with a warning. It's a parent giving you a second chance. It's not getting written up when you mess up at work. It's a mistake with the bank and it's your fault, and they say don't worry about it. Late on a bill and the late fees are waived. Harsh words and the reply is kind and gentle back towards you. Those are all examples of mercy. Getting something that you do not deserve is what mercy is. All he could do is throw himself at the feet of God and plead for mercy. He was clear about his request mercy. Mercy. He's also clear about his condition mercy on who? On me. And how does he describe himself? As a sinner. We know this guy was a bad dude. He's a thief, he's a liar, he's a traitor. He's despised, but he knew it as well. He knew his sin, he didn't try to justify it, he didn't try to minimize it, he didn't try to hide it, he didn't try to deny it. He simply acknowledged it. And he knew that he did not deserve one ounce of grace and mercy. And he said, God, if there's any way, give me something I really don't deserve. And that's mercy. It's interesting to me that nothing he did wrong, he listed. He did, whereas the Pharisee listed what? Everything he did right. He just said, God, I'm a sinner. His situation appears to be somewhat hopeless because if he repents of his sin, he has to go and make restitution at a 20% rate to everybody that he's taken from. There's a story a little bit later about a tax collector who does the same thing in Luke 19. His name is Zacchaeus. He actually returns four times the amount. And so if you've taken it 10% and you have to repay it 20%, where is that going to leave you after you pay everybody back? Broke. Right? So if he does the right thing, he's going to be flat broke. And if he ends his activity as a tax collector, he loses his livelihood. And now he's hated by the Romans. And who hires ex-tax collectors? Nobody does. Nobody. So he's broke. No chance of earning an income. Nothing. Nothing. And so here stands these two men. The Pharisee and the tax collector. And the question is, how will God evaluate them? How will God evaluate them? On the one hand is the Pharisee who appears to be done everything right and seems to be a shoe in for God's favor. On the other hand, you have a man who appears to have done everything wrong and appears to be the odds-on favorite to get a lump of coal given to him from God. And what is God going to do? Well, Jesus' reply leaves those listening with their jaws hanging open. He says, I tell you, this man, speaking to the tax collector, rather than the other, speaking of the Pharisee, went home justified before God. This man, the tax collector, not the other, the Pharisee, went home justified. Justified means you're okay with God. You're declared right. You're okay with God. You're good with God. Not what they expected. You would almost expect the Pharisee to get a little bit of props, wouldn't you? Hey, you know, you did some good things. You're on the right track, you know. an attaboy, good job. You got nothing. You got nothing. And maybe even the tax collector to be told by God, keep going, you're moving in the right direction. And he was the one that God was pleased with. He's the one that God was pleased with. He goes on to say this verse that's quoted in other places in the Bible For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Those who exalt themselves, those who pat themselves on the back, who talk about themselves, who post their stats on Facebook, Instagram, and treat that, tweet them, they will be humbled. They will be humbled, they will be brought low, they will be left with nothing. And those who humble themselves, don't don't talk about themselves, brag about themselves, brag about their kids, flaunt their accomplishments, they will be exalted, elevated, lifted up. Jesus gives us a glimpse of how God evaluates us, how God sees us. And it's not by anything that you can see on the outside. Nothing you can see on the outside. It's not what your kids are like, what your finances are like, what you do in the church, how you worship, how you serve. How you, it's none of those things are God's measuring sticks for us. None of them. None of them. God only looks at our heart. And He presents a picture of two hearts. He looks at a proud heart that focuses on telling God what He has done and expecting God to give Him something because of it. A proud heart focuses on what I have done and expects God to give me something because of what I've done. And a humble heart simply acknowledges who I am, who God is, and doesn't mix the two of them up. So how do you see yourself as deserving something from God or humbly asking God for help? I was thinking about this whole idea of a humble heart and a proud heart. I thought, when does a proud heart show up? When does pride pop up? When does our demandedness to God show up? When do we pray like the Pharisee? God, I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this, and wait for something from Him? I think it shows up when we're struggling. Life is hard. I think it shows up when we're facing a hopeless situation. God, I've served You. I've served You for all these years. Can't you bring my kid back? Don't I get a little bit for all of this? God, I've followed you. Can't you bring my wife or my husband back and save our marriage? God I've given to you, I've tied. Can't you save my business? It's hard to admit when you've got a proud heart. It's hard to admit it. I think it shows up when we need God the most. And what it does is it painfully exposes that our love and devotion was God, to God was based on what I could get from God. Not offering Him my life as an act of gratitude for all that He's done for me. When does humility show up? When does humility show up? I think humility shows up when I'm face down with God, when I'm honest about my sin. And this last one may be the most impactful one when I see the effect of my sin on other people. Then I'm on my face before God. knowing that apart from His mercy, I don't even know how I'll survive. You see, this tax collector knew what he had done. He knew how undeserving he was. And he knew the effect of his actions it had on other people. And he was so overwhelmed with his grief. He just said, God, have mercy on me. I just don't deserve anything. You see, most of us would not pray the prayer of the Pharisee as brazenly as he does. But how many of us have thought those things in our hearts? Most of us want to pray like the tax collector, God, you're amazing and I'm not deserving of anything you give to me, but is that really true of our hearts? As a result, what is God's response to the proud heart? God humbles them. God humbles them. And what is God's response to the humble heart? God exalts them. You know, I think the picture when I think of the the tax collector and the picture that comes to my mind is a picture of a child. A child reaching up to a parent and saying, I need you. I need you. Not, you owe me. You owe me. And which one of these do you say to God? God, I need you? Or God... You owe me. I don't think it's an accident that in the very next verse, look who Luke records Jesus encounters people bringing babies. How ironic to Jesus. To place his hands on them, the disciples said, Move them away. They rebuked them, and Jesus said, Let the little children come. Don't hinder them. For the kingdom of God is for people who act just like them, such as these. Anyone who cannot receive the kingdom of heaven of God like a child. Helpless. In need of someone to save them. Can't go in. Can't go in. You know, a child's not afraid to ask, are they? No. A child's not hesitant to ask. Are they? No. A child's not unsure if the parent's going to respond. No. They expect mom or dad to reach down and pick them up and bring them close and let them know how loved they truly are. So ask yourself this question, what's the condition of my heart today? What's the condition of my heart today? Is your heart proud? Do you pride yourself on how you looked, on how your kids act, on your position, your status in the community, in the church? Is your heart humble before God, acknowledging that without Him you're nothing? Nothing? Without him, you're nothing. Today is a day for you to say, God, I just want to open my hands just like this and say, God, here they are. Here's everything. And I need you. I need you. Today is a day for you to bring your proud heart to God and say, God, I've really believed that this is all because of me. My hard work, my discipline, my creativity, my intellect, my sacrifice. And that's what's got me where I am today. And maybe today is a day for you to just open your hands and say, God, I realize this all came from you. And you could take it just as quickly as you've given it to me. And I want my heart to be humble before you this morning. In just a moment, we're going to pray. And I'm going to ask you to bring your heart before God. And I'm going to ask you to bring your heart, not just in your thoughts and in your mind, but with your physical presence. In this text, as you read through it, it was very descriptive of the physical characteristics of the Pharisee who saw himself and looked down. And this tax collector who stepped away and looked down because he did not dare look up to the God of the heavens. And so I want to invite you in just a moment when we pray to do something with your hands. To open your hands before God and say, God, I, everything I have is yours. It's not about me. And to, as you pray, even reach your hands up to heaven and say, God, I need you. Have mercy on me. I don't deserve it. I didn't earn it. But you did this all for me. I don't know where your heart is today but God doesn't evaluate your prayer life by how much you pray you talk to people about prayer and 9 out of 10 people will say oh I should be praying more God never says how much you should pray He never does ever in the Bible He doesn't But what he does say is what's the condition of your heart when you come to pray? That's what matters. And so I'm going to give you a moment to bow your heads, to examine your heart, to use your hands to express your heart before God. Would you join me in bowing your heads in prayer? And as we bow, I just want to invite you to bring your hearts before God. And as you bring your heart before God, to just open your hands as a physical way to to symbolize your heart before Him. God, You know our hearts. better than our parents know us, than our spouse knows us, than our good friends know us. You know our hearts. And so God, today, whether our hearts are proud, God, I pray that You would help us to open our hands and simply say, God, our hearts are Yours. And God, I... Recognize everything I have is from You. God, I pray that even a step beyond that, that You would invite us to lift our hands to You, even physically, and say, God, here's my heart. I need You. I need Your mercy. I need Your grace. I need this every single day. God, make that the prayer of our heart, represented by our hands. In your name we pray, amen. I asked myself this question, I said, what does God do with a humble heart? Based on that passage, excuse me, let's go the other way. What does God promise he will do with a proud heart? What will He do? This is when you can speak. He will humble him. He will humble him. What will God do with a humble heart? Exalt them. Exalt them. You know, I found myself wondering what would God do with a man or a woman or a student with a humble heart in their home, in their job, in their classroom? Um, What would God do? What would God do with a small group of people with humble hearts every day saying, God, be merciful to me? What would God do with the faith community, a church, said, God, we are just humble before you. Have mercy on us. We need you. That's my longing. That's the prayer of our hearts.